0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh, or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. The scripture passage that was just read for us prepares us very well. For us to continue in Matthew today, and we are now in Matthew chapter 4. As we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, we have learned much about who Christ is. Chapter 1, Christ was introduced. The fulfillment of all the prophecies and all the promises of God in all of the genealogies come in Christ. Chapter 2, we saw that not everyone receives the good news well. Herod found it bad news that Christ had been born. And it reveals that in our hearts is a wrestling over who will be king. In chapter 3, we saw Jesus testified of who he truly is by the Father and the Spirit as he fulfilled all righteousness. But here in chapter 4, this passage is very, very helpful for you and I, and here's why. Sometimes in a specific area in our life or a specific struggle or for a long season, we start to think that there is no hope for true change. But this passage deals with overcoming temptation And resisting the devil. And in it we will see power and hope for true change. This morning, let's start by acknowledging some of the things we think are reasons we can't change maybe aren't true. Sometimes we think our circumstances define us. Pastor Tim Chester pastors in England and he wrote about two older women in his flock and here's what he wrote. Dorothy and Naomi were two elderly women in my church. Both struggled with physical pain. Dorothy had a problem with her legs and when you met her, she told you about her medical problems in great detail. They got her down and made her gloomy. Her conversation had one theme, herself. In contrast, Naomi had had acute arthritis for many years and her fingers were curled into fist. In the last months of her life, cancer ate away at her body She was in constant physical pain, often wincing, and yet her eyes shone brightly, and in conversation she spoke of God's goodness and asked other people how they were doing. The two women faced similar circumstances. If you had asked Dorothy, though, what was getting her down, she would have said it was her ailments, but Naomi responded to her circumstances in a very different way. The joy of the Lord was her strength. Therefore, one thing that we may wrongly think is the reason change is impossible is we may wrongly think that our circumstances define us and limit who we can be. But about 400 years ago, John Flavel, who lived in the 1600s and was a Puritan minister, wrote six common lies that Satan uses to convince us that hope and change is impossible. Here are his six. The first, in temptation, is Satan tries to convince us of the pleasure of sin. Look how pleasurable this will be. How could you ever stay away from such delights? A second way Satan tempts us and thereby can keep us from the actual change God has for us is through the secrecy of sin. No one will ever find out. This will never disgrace you. A third common lie that Satan uses is the profit of sin. If you stretch your conscience just a little, think of everything you could gain. A fourth one that John Flavel identified was the smallness of sin. Oh, it's such a little thing. Why are you even worrying about it? Why are you letting your conscience be pricked by it? You should never care about something so trivial. A fifth thing that Flavel pointed out that Satan may trick us about is that the grace of God we may use as an excuse to actually continue in sin, as Paul warned about in Romans 6. And a sixth thing that Flavel warned us that Satan may use to trick us is the example of others. Satan sometimes deceives us into thinking, well, better people than you have struggled, and God still found use for them. And so why would you worry about it? So what hope is there for us today as sinners who often are lured and sometimes even fail in temptation and that sometimes believe that change is beyond possibility? What hope is there for us? And I believe today's passage actually gives us the ground for that. The title of today's sermon is Resisting the Devil. That text was read for us, but here it happens literally. And so in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 12, we're going to look at resisting the devil. If you have the notes I sent you, you'll see us walk through the text and then make some observations that are very much applicable for us today. Look now in Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus. Was led. Now, the the first word actually does matter, so the coordinating conjunction, then, is very interesting. Then, what what does he mean? After what? After what? Do you remember at the end of chapter 3? After Jesus was publicly affirmed by God the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And after the Holy Spirit rested on him satisfyingly. After that public moment of affirmation, now, Jesus is going to be led into a place of temptation. I think that's very important for this reason. Jesus has been publicly affirmed, but his character will be tested before, down in chapter 4, verse 17, he begins public ministry. This is very important. Character must be tested before public ministry can begin, you see. So Jesus here has to be tested in his character before there's a platform for him to publicly share anything. And notice who leads him there. Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice God has ordained Jesus to go through this temptation. Now, I don't want you to miss this because this is important. James 1, verse 13 says that God is not tempted to evil and neither does he tempt anyone to evil. God then is not the author or cause of any evil or any temptation to evil. But God does sovereignly ordain even temptation we endure for his good purposes. And here Jesus is going to be led by a place under God's sovereign will where he will face temptation. And this very certainly will happen to us as well. Now verse two. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. What an understatement. Over the last five or six days, I don't know that I've gone 40 minutes without eating. (laughs) Here, Jesus has gone 40 days and 40 nights. And it just says in such a casual way, he was hungry. Well, yes, he was hungry, right? Now, about the longest, doctors say, a human can make it without food is 40 days. And during a fast, normally you'd still drink water. But here, Jesus is at the, the end of human ability to endure without food. And of course, he's hungry. And now he's being tempted by the devil. God has a good purpose even through the devil's evil. But notice now the temptation. And here if you have my notes, you'll notice that I've made a a key point. Privilege is what Satan is going after. Look in verse 3. And the tempter, this is the devil himself, came to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now let me just tell you, most of the time I try to keep my Greek and Hebrew in the study and not bring it out on Sunday morning. But every once in a while, it has to be brought out. This is one of those times. In the Greek, it's A, it's the Greek word, epsilon yoda, plus the indicative mood. I know these are a lot of technical things, but it does matter. Here's why. A plus the indicative mood is what's called a first-class condition, meaning it is a statement that is assumed true. Let me read from a Greek grammar and then explain why this matters. Here's what the Greek grammar says I'm quoting. First class conditional sentences express actions which are assumed true from the writer's perspective, even though it might be expressed with an if. In several contexts, like Matthew 4.3, it could be translated since. Here's why this matters. If you're reading Matthew 4.3 and you read Satan say to Jesus, if you're the son of God, you might think Satan is saying, hey, I'm not sure if you're the son of God, but if you are, you should be able to do this. That is not at all what he's saying. This is a first class condition and it could be translated since. Here's what Satan is saying. Since you're the son of God, since you have that position and privilege, why don't you take advantage of that position and status and just indulge yourself? Since you have position and power and status, just use it for your own advantage. You see, he's not saying prove yourself as the son of God. Satan knows Jesus is the son of God. He's saying privilege yourself as the son of God for your own advantage. You see, the temptation is one of indulgence. Privilege your position and exploit it for your own good, like Satan did originally. You have position, you have gifts, you have power. Why not use them how you want to use them and make the loaves of bread appear on demand? But now notice how how Jesus responds to the first temptation. Verse 4, But he answered, It is written. Do not miss that phrase. Jesus will repeat it every single time he responds, meaning every one of Jesus' responses is a quotation of Scripture. So verse 4. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So according to the Bible, I don't just need my physical needs met. I need more than that. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus' answer is, the word of God gives me life and it satisfies me. Now there might be a confusion here. Why would it be wrong for Jesus to eat bread? Why is it wrong for him to just snap his fingers and turn the loaves to bread? Why would that be bad? In the Old Testament, Israel had to go through the wilderness relying on God's provision at his time and in his way. Sometimes they got annoyed at waiting for God's provision at his time and in his way, and they tried to take matters into their own hands, and it always ended spectacularly poorly. Here Jesus also is in a time of wilderness temptation, where he is supposed to wait for God's provision in God the Father's plan and in God the Father's timing. You see, Satan is asking him to shortcut that. When I was in high school, I played soccer, and we had a a long soccer field outside. And we didn't have one of those big tracks around it that was an oval shape. So we had to run around the rectangle soccer field. It was 120 yards in length. It was longer than a football field. And our coach would come out and he'd say, you guys got to run 27 laps around the rectangle field, but you're not allowed to cut the corners. You have to go all the way to the end and cut over. But then he would go inside and you know, grade papers. And so the temptation was sitting right in front of all of us. What if we just cut the corners here? We'll come out. The coach will come back. We'll be done early. He'll never know the difference. And maybe we'll even use it to our advantage and we'll start over somebody else by having a faster apparent time. But of course, what happens if you cut the corners, then when the actual game comes and you're in the second half and you're in those final minutes You're not in game shape, and the game reveals it. Now, if you know the Gospel of Matthew very well, this exact phrase that Satan says to Jesus here, hey, if you're the Son of God, then privilege yourself and make the stones bread. Do you know that same phrase is said when Jesus is on the cross? Hey, if you're the Son of God, then just call 10,000 angels and just come down by yourself. You see, if he cuts the corners here, then he's not ready for when the full temptation comes. If you're thinking, no, Jesus doesn't have to grow. Oh, but friend, Luke 2, verse 42 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Do do you know that Jesus, when God became man, Jesus grew, but he did so perfectly. So in his example, he shows us here, if I cut the corner here, then I won't be ready for what the Father has called me for then. Here, we see from Jesus, he does not give in on his position or his power, but he trusts God the Father's plan and provision and timing. Now, the second temptation, again, comes with privilege yourself, but now from a new wrinkle. Verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and took him to the pinnacle of the temple to help your mind's eye color in the picture this is about 300 feet in the air over the kidron valley and the devil said to him in verse 6 again if but of course meaning since you're the son of god since you have that power in that position privilege yourself and here do it do it by throwing yourself down for it is written And he here quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Do you see how Satan has adjusted his tactic? Oh, Jesus, you like to quote scripture. Well, then I'll quote some too. (laughs) But he'll quote it out of context. This quotation is a blatant misuse of Scripture. It is not actually what Scripture teaches. Satan is actually perverting Scripture to say something different than what it really intends. Let me pause here to make a very important application for all of us. All of us, but some of you, perhaps more than others, are very susceptible for wanting to hear something that isn't actually true, but it's what you want to hear. Did you know you can find A minister online or on TV normally who will say that thing you want to hear that's false but will use just enough scripture to make you feel like it's okay. There's a lot of them. In fact, 2 Timothy 4 warns that in the last days there will be people who have itching ears who want to hear what they want to hear and they will gather to themselves teachers who say what they want to hear. Brothers and sisters, be more discerning with scripture than allowing it to be perverted, to say what you really want to hear in that moment, though you know isn't actually true. And you can learn how to do that by the example of Jesus. Look in verse 7. Jesus said to him, that is Satan, again or also. Wait, did you see what Jesus did there? Hey, Satan, I know you're quoting this verse, but there are other verses too. (laughs) And they balance your misuse of this verse. See, Scripture interprets Scripture. And so when you know other scriptures, then you don't abuse the ones that are easy to take out of context. I heard a joke on this once that always stuck with me. It's an old joke. Maybe you've heard it too. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. And if we're not careful, we could use the Bible as if it's a magic eight ball where you shake it and then wherever you fluff through it and your finger lands and you just roll with that. And and the joke goes like this. There was a man who was using the Bible that way, like it was a magic eight ball, spinning it like a globe and just putting his finger wherever it landed. And the first scripture he came on said Judas went out and hanged himself. He was like, I I don't know what to do now. So he flipped through it again and flipped through it again and he put his finger wherever it landed. And the second scripture was, go and do thou likewise. (laughs) And he was really concerned now. So he flipped the scripture again. All right, this is the third it. Third time's the charm. Landed his finger on it, and it said, that thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> so we surely should know better than to use the Bible that way. So, so when we hear something from the Bible that is leaning into the sinful inclination we have, like Jesus, our first thought should be, wait, but over here it says. So, so there are balancing truths to that that remind us that God has more to say on the matter. So Satan is telling Jesus, why don't you do something stupid and then call it faith? Why don't you do something imprudent and foolish and call it faith? Why don't you just jump off and risk death because God promises He'll take care of people? But but no, that's not faith, that's foolishness. So Jesus knows enough of the Bible to know, and now look in verse 7. Jesus now quotes from Deuteronomy 6 You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Yes, there are Bible verses that tell us God can protect us, and praise God, those are true. But there are Bible verses that tell us to be prudent, to be wise, to be discerning, and they have to be balanced. So Jesus knows enough of the Bible to be careful there. But Jesus knows ultimately, just like the first temptation, he will not use his privilege to shortcut God the Father's plan or timing. Let me make an an implication here, though, that's very important. See, Jesus is suffering, and Satan's temptation is essentially, why don't you just end your suffering? Surely God would not want you to ever be hungry or to ever experience suffering. Many people still think that. God the Father would never want you to ever experience any pain or any difficulty. But see, Jesus knows better than that. You see, the reality is, Jesus does not worship personal comfort, and therefore he knows that sometimes the Father does ordain temporary pain for our good. See, therefore, he is able to trust. We should know that as as Christians, all of us will have to be matured in our ability to trust God's wisdom, even through things that temporarily hurt. Think of in your own family, when you have a young child and they cry and they're just an infant, what do you immediately do? You come and comfort them. But as they get a little older and they cry, there starts to be a moment where you don't immediately comfort them. And then at some point they get to an age where they cry and you're like, that's enough. (laughs) And then at some point they get to an age where they just don't even cry about that thing that was overwhelming them. This maturation process is necessary. Now the third temptation. Look in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he, that is Satan, said to Jesus, all these I will give you. Now do you see why Satan is tempting in this way? Jesus has come to be king of kings, but Satan knows that the path to that is the cross. And so Satan is tempting Jesus to skip the suffering part and go right to the glory. You see, Jesus, I'll give you all this and you can skip the pain part, and you can have it. But Satan is always trying to sell what isn't his to give. And so we should consider the source of the person who's trying to sell us something. Have you ever looked at homes with a shady real estate agent? (laughs) I remember when I did. I remember a real estate agent we had up north when we were first looking for homes. And he would take us out and say, hey, look, this home has a deck. And I'd say, can I walk on it? Ah, we don't have time. We need to get going. (laughs) This home has a pool. Can we uncover it? No, just look at the pictures I showed you online. We'd walk in the basement. What's that black stuff on the wall? I think it's mold. No, it's artistic decor. Let's keep moving. (laughs) Uh, That's how Satan works too. Let me show you the kingdoms of this world and all the glory you have. Just don't zoom in and look at them too closely. Let me show you all the wonder you'll have, but just don't read the fine print and what you'll have to eventually give up. Uh, And don't consider the person who's selling it to you. Look at how the verse ends. All these I will give you what? If you fall down And worship me. And if you fall down and worship Satan, what do you really have anyway? Jesus in Matthew 16 will say it this way. What does a man gain if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? This is the cost that Satan always has. But he highlights the parts where it looks like you're going to get to skip out on all the pain, not realizing you've made a trade of eternal detriment. So now verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus now for the third time has quoted Scripture. And Jesus once again is unwilling to skip suffering that God ordains because he knows it's necessary for God's plan. Jesus is so committed to this, by the way. Do you guys remember the time where Peter says to Jesus, Hey, I'll get a sword and I'll fight everybody and and we can skip the cross. And do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? He says, get behind me. Whom? Satan. Because that's where this temptation comes from. Let's skip all the suffering part and jump to the glory. No, that's actually not how it works. But see, the Father's plan and the Father's provision is perfect and it does always come. So no, not verse 11. Then the devil left him he resisted the devil and the devil fled and behold angels came and who sent those <laughs> and were ministering to him surely taking care of his physical needs see the father has provided at the right time and in the right way and now Jesus has passed the test now let's turn a little bit and talk about what a passage like this means for you and I first let's talk about how it's helpful um, because it gives us an insight into how the arch enemy attacks us. So let me make three observations to how Satan may attack you and I. Here's my first Satan prefers to pounce when we are depleted. Satan prefers to pounce when we are depleted. I once learned the acronym HALT to help us understand when we're most likely to give into temptation. HALT. It's H A L T. The H stands for HALT when you're hungry. Even Snickers understands this. They said you're not you when you're hungry. <laughs> A, when you're alone. L, when you're lonely, which, which you, you can be lonely even when there are other people around you, see. So H, when you're hungry. A, when you're alone. L, when you're lonely. Or T, when you're tired. And those four I have found hold very true. Most often when you do something that you really shouldn't do, what, something even you are not proud of, Probably one of those four things is true at that moment. See, Satan prefers to pounce when you're depleted. He comes at the very end of Jesus' 40-day fast, right? He knows when the right time is. So know that so that you can be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, does walk around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You should have this knowledge of how he works so that you can be more alert and more vigilant in your defenses, Number two, my second observation of how Satan works. Satan encourages us to think we deserve, we deserve. He, he likes to push the entitlement button. Did you notice each time with Jesus, he said, hey, censure you're the son of God, hey, censure you're the son of God, hey, censure you're the son of God, you deserve, you deserve, you deserve, you deserve. Have you noticed like 80 to 90% of commercials work that way? <laughs> You deserve, you deserve, oh, you deserve, oh, man, if anyone's worked as hard as you, you deserve, you deserve this. I've noticed this is something that scares me and that I often pray about in my own life. Have you noticed the wheels normally don't come off at the beginning? It's normally the second half. People, they're like faithful for a while, they start out, life's hard, they they trust the Lord, but no, that second half, though, is when it all falls apart. I, I've been reading Second Chronicles at home, and this happens over and over and over and over with the kings of Israel and Judah. King Asa, when he was a young king, he depended on God, he relied on God, he was humble, and God did great things. But then on the second half of life, he had success, and the kingdom was going well, and he started to read his own press clippings. Look at what a good king I've been. Look at how powerful the kingdom is. You know what? I used to rely on the Lord for victory, but maybe I'll just partner with the Syrians this time. And the Lord comes to him at the end and says, in your youth, you relied on me and I strengthened your hand, but now you have abandoned me and I abandon you for the eyes of the Lord. Seek to and fro to find those hearts who rely on him. You see, I pray this for myself. I do not want to be unfaithful in the second half. And that's why it's so easy to fall into the we deserve lie. In fact, we can even do that with grace. Well, God's been gracious. Surely God will be more gracious. We deserve to take advantage of these opportunities. See, there's a fine line between using grace as a remedy for sin or as an excuse to continue in sin. I think that like most helpful author on sin and temptation in the history of the church is John Owen. He he really spent his entire life working on that topic. And here is a quote from him that's thick, but I hope you'll catch it because I think it's very, very helpful. John Owen wrote, here then is where the deceit of sin intervenes. Sin persuades us to dwell upon the notion of grace and diverts our attention from the influence that grace gives to achieve its proper application in holy lives. From the doctrine of assured pardon of sin, it insinuates a carelessness for sin. The soul, needing frequently to return to the gospel grace because of guilt, then allows grace to become commonplace and ordinary, having found a good medicine for the wound, it then takes it for granted. Think of Titus 2 where it says, For the grace of God has taught us to deny ungodliness, in worldly lust and live soberly and righteously in this present age. Grace is a healing balm for us as sinners, but grace should never be an excuse to continue in sin. We deserve is the lie. Now third, here's the third observation from how Satan works with Jesus and therefore how he works with you and I. Satan twists scripture. <laughs> Satan twists scripture. Therefore, we must rightly divide the word of truth. Did you know that Satan's, and this is, I'm using the term technically and literally, Satan's literal oldest trick in the book is to reframe what God said. Do you remember that with Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Has God really said? Literally the oldest trick in the book, is that really what it says? Is that really what it means? That's still how he does it. This is such a subtle danger sometimes don't realize we're falling into it, even when we're trying to fight against sin. We can use Christianese language that's a little off course, even in our battle against sin. Jerry Bridges writes, God wants us to walk in obedience, not always constant victory. Our problem, Bridges continues, is that our attitude towards sin tends to be more self-centered than God-centered. We might be more concerned about our own, quote, victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. See, you can even twist Christianese in the way you try to fight sin. But now, let me give you some good news. Why is Jesus's success so important for you and I? Why is the fact that he resisted temptation in this passage such good news for you and I today? I first need to show you why this pattern is purposeful. Satan is in the sorry, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. How long was Israel in the wilderness? Do you remember? 40 years. Do you think that's coincidental? Now Israel's in the wilderness for 40 years where they fail. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days where he succeeds. Did you know that every scripture Jesus quotes here is one from the wilderness wanderings? Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8. That's no accident. Jesus is quoting to show that he has obeyed where God's people have failed. Jesus has succeeded where saints have sinned. Jesus has come through to be the true Son. He's not just a pattern, he's a counter pattern. Notice the t- conditions in which Satan chose to tempt Jesus. It's The end of his health, and it's the wilderness, it's the worst possible conditions. But do you remember where Satan chose to tempt us, our original ancestors, Adam and Eve? What were the conditions like for them? (laughs) They were as good as they could possibly be. Jesus succeeds in the harshest possible conditions. We failed in the best possible conditions. As Romans 5.12 says, when Adam sinned, all sinned. In Adam's fall, we sinned all, as we say it in the catechism. See, Satan comes to Jesus and says, hey, since you're the Son of God, why don't you privilege it and use it for your own advantage? But praise God, Jesus did not fail. And unlike us, he trusted and obeyed the Father. This irony of Jesus' ability to be what we should be appears throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is hungry, but instead he feeds others. Jesus grows weary, but he offers others rest. Jesus is the king of kings, but he pays tribute (laughs) to Caesar. Jesus is called the devil by his oppressors, and yet he casts out demons. Jesus dies the death reserved for a bad sinner, yet he actually dies to save people from their sins. He is sold for 30 pieces of silver, but he's actually giving his life a ransom for many. He refuses to turn stones to bread to feed himself, but yet he'll give his own body as the bread of life to all who believe. Jesus subverts every expectation because he succeeds as the only true son of God. And in fact, rather than privileging his status, he takes upon the form of a servant, is made in the likeness of death, and humbles himself, not to any death, but the death of a cross. You see, Philippians 2 tells us that even though he was in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or used to his own advantage. Why is that good news for us? Here's two reasons why. Because Jesus succeeded, that means that you and I, though we have failed, can have our sins forgiven. His righteousness can be placed on our account, and our sins can be placed on his body where he permanently and successfully paid for them. It is good news that Jesus did not sin when Satan tempted him, because it means we can be saved But it's also good news for a second reason. It means that Jesus' power is capable to help us overcome any temptation. I've noticed in my life that most churches stress only one of those two truths. You either go to a church that constantly tells you, hey, Jesus can forgive you, Jesus can forgive you, Jesus can forgive you. Or you go to a church that constantly tells you, You need to grow. You need to change. You need to fight temptation. Very rarely do you hear both. But that is actually what the Scriptures teach. (laughs) Jesus came to do both. Praise God, your sins will be covered by the blood of the person who never sinned. But also understand that God's intention is for us to grow and change in Christ's likeness. Both are true. And both wonderfully can occur. One last thing I want you to notice from this passage. Satan lies to Jesus in the same way he lies to us. Have you noticed that Satan always wants you to feel like you're all alone? But who led Jesus into the wilderness and who was still with him? The spirit. Satan also wants you to think that you're powerless. But where did Jesus find power? The word of God. Both are true. God's presence is always here if you're a believer, and His power is always available. So let me end by giving you two scriptures that actually are powerful in God's presence in your life. Here's the first James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. No, like, hear it until you believe it. (laughs) Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But the last scripture I'll close with is actually even the more important one. It's from Hebrews 12. Look into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised in the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And verse 3 is the one that often isn't known, but it's very important. Consider him. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. So look to him and consider him. If you're here today and your sins haven't been forgiven, then look to him for salvation. And if you're here and you are a sinner saved by grace, still struggling with the temptation of the devil. Look to him and consider him for the power to resist and overcome what seems irresistible and insurmountable. Let's pray this morning. Dear God, I thank you that the Bible says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let us never think that we are powerless to the attacks of the enemy. We have the helmet of salvation. The shield of faith, the sword of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. Lord, in every way you have made the man of God able to withstand the attacks of the enemy. And so one of the enemy's most common lies is that you have to fail. You're going to fail. You can't succeed. You're all alone. You're powerless. What a lie. Christ is with us and he will never forsake us. Christ has succeeded. He has risen victoriously. He survived in the wilderness without ever sinning and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us and working in us. Therefore, there is nothing that he is unable to change. In fact, the Bible promises us again. He has made in every temptation a way to escape so that we are able to bear it. So Lord, do not let us believe the lie of Satan. But ultimately, what we are most thankful for is this. We do sin. We have sinned. And when Satan tells us we're sinners, he's right. But praise God, the author and finisher of our faith is Jesus. Because though we have failed, and though Adam and Eve failed in the best possible scenario, Jesus succeeded in the harshest. And he went to the cross to deal with our sin definitively, and he rose victoriously. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So remind us we are forgiven, not because we have succeeded, but because Jesus did in our place. And remind us then that he who succeeded is still at work in us, and therefore the enemy cannot overcome us and encourage us with that truth, especially as we dawn a new year. In Christ we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.